Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Chris Scanati, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, filling in this week for Jeremy Schwartz. And alongside Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. My co-host is Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and Future for Investors. Please note that I'm a registered representative of Foreside Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. So we have a lot to talk about this week uh, with our guests um, to talk about uh, some ETF uh, trading and, and different ideas and markets. We are super excited. We have Reggie Brown. And for listeners out there who don't know who he is, he is literally a living legend in the ETF industry. Uh, Reggie, you mind sharing some of your background experiences? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I've been in the ETF industry for 23 years. Uh, starting in 1994 or so, and uh, I had the fortunate ability to uh, launch almost a thousand ETFs in the United States and also in Europe. So I've been fortunate to be a market maker in the United States, providing liquidity for ETFs and helping ETFs come to market. Outstanding, a thousand ETFs, not bad. And coming up, not too far behind him is Ryan Curlin, also in the studio with us today. Ryan, you helped launch over 600 ETFs at NYSE. You want to tell us a little bit more about your experience? Yeah, it was uh, yeah, a little different angle from what, what Reggie was doing where we were at the New York Stock Exchange. We launched uh, 600, about a little over, ETFs in my time there. That makes up about 25% of the existing market. Um, but we were, we were working to get firms to list their ETFs with the exchange, whereas uh, Reggie was working with firms to, to bring them from a trading perspective. Outstanding. Well, this pains me a little bit to even bring up the topic, but uh, you know, as a value investor who doesn't like to think about shiny rocks and objects, but we got to talk about crypto and Bitcoin. Uh, Ryan, I know you initially helped the Winklevoss almost launch an ETF based on Bitcoin. That's Can you right. talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So, so yeah, back when about five years ago, when I was at the New York Stock Exchange, uh, we worked on the uh, Winklevoss's idea for for a Bitcoin ETF. Their idea was it was going to be a physical based uh, Bitcoin ETF, so similar to uh, what GLD is. So GLD owns actual physical gold, um, and this was going to be the Bitcoin version of that. Um, so with ETFs, though, it's important to be able to calculate the net asset value of the underlying assets. Um, so you can think of it for SPY. That's really easy to do, right? There's the 500 names, um, and you're taking up the, their, their percentage within the fund, um, and that's going to give you the net asset value for of SPY. With, with Bitcoin, though, five years ago, the question was, how do you calculate the net asset value of a basket of Bitcoin? The solution proposed at the time was based off of <clears throat> was based off of all the uh, all the exchanges around the world that that uh, were were trading Bitcoin, and we were going to use those exchanges to to calculate the net asset value. Now, those the problem was those exchanges weren't the New York Stock Exchange, they weren't Nasdaq, right? So there was a, a issue around. Um, are these fair prices for Bitcoin, and is it unmanipulable, not able to be manipulated? So for an extreme example of an ETF idea that we saw uh, not make it to market, um, and I think Reggie had some experience with this as well, was there was an idea to bring a physical-backed diamond ETF to market. And how are they going to price that? 
Well, they were going to price that through the price off of the Diamond District uh, storefront. So every storefront in New York City uh, in the Diamond District puts the prices of diamonds out every day. Um, and that's how they were going to use to calculate the net asset value of this diamond fund. Now, that got turned down by the SEC, again, because it wasn't fair uh, and, and manipulable pricing in the SEC's eyes. So back to uh, the, the Bitcoin. What's changed now is now we have futures on Bitcoin, um, and that's going to enable fair and transparent pricing for a Bitcoin ETF. So what we are likely to see is first a, a Bitcoin ETF based off of the futures, um, and then following that, we should see uh, Bitcoin, which was the one that I worked on originally, uh, a Bitcoin based off of physical um, uh, Bitcoins. So now my question to Reggie then is, uh, what's, what's the readiness, Reggie, for uh, the trading firms, the ETF trading firms, to be able to trade both a futures ETF backed uh, by Bitcoin and a, and a physical backed well, thanks, Ryan. I think there's a couple of elements here. Uh, the ETF industry being 27 years old uh, with $4 trillion of assets and growing uh, around the world, uh, there's a lot of capacity for innovation uh, in the marketplace. And with the ETF structure, um, it's basically a mutual fund with benefits to trade on exchange. Um, there's a lot of marketplace resiliency around new ideas because it's a mutual fund. And so Bitcoin in particular, um, I came out uh, in, in uh, 2014, 13, 14, saying um, the marketplace was not necessarily ready for a Bitcoin ETF because we didn't have enough inputs in the marketplace like um, control location around the Bitcoin itself. Uh, there was issues around suitability concerns. And it seemed as though that uh, the cart was before the horse around this idea. And with the launch of the uh, futures on Bitcoin um, you know, a week or so ago, I think we're getting closer to seeing um, an exchange-traded vehicle on a Bitcoin. Now, I say exchange-traded vehicle because every um, uh, ET. Uh, P, exchange traded product, is not necessarily an ETF, so I want to make sure that we categorize that properly. So I think there's a lot of opportunity um, once you see the futures trade uh, for a period of time here in the United States and get comfortable with the idea around a futures-based ETP on Bitcoin, um, I think we're ready to see that. I will note that there are more than 15 applications to launch a Bitcoin product in the United States and several more in Canada. My prediction is that we're going to see a product in Canada first uh, and then the United States sometime inside of 2018. That's right. What, what is that? You know, because we saw for ETFs, the Canadian government, the original ETF was approved um, yeah, in, in Canada beating SPY. So what's the, what's the differences there in the regulatory environment? Well, I think a little history. I mean, I'm sitting here today on the beautiful campus of University of Pennsylvania, and I am a uh, born and bred in, in Philadelphia. So I will tell you that the, the idea was first spawned here in Philadelphia, and because of legal action and lawsuits around licensing of SP 500, um, innovation stopped in the United States and went to a uh, a country that had uh, a lower burden on regulation and and innovation, so Canada. So I think the Canadian regulators have um, uh, are willing to test the marketplace on new ideas and then take empirical evidence. If it works well, it continues. If it doesn't, they shut it down. And I think in the United States, we're a little more cautious. You know, So uh, it's just a matter of time that we get enough evidence that says that it's working well. Now, one other fact, if you look at the futures today on Bitcoin, is trading at a premium to its spot price. So when the futures came out, the uh, the Bitcoin futures are trading 12% over spot. And it was trading 6% two days ago. And today, when I checked, coming in here, it was trading 2.5%. So that means the marketplace um, is still not um, it's, it's still not germinating fast enough to understand how to keep the arbitrage price tight. Gotcha. Appreciate that, Reggie. I think that's great insight there. Now, outside of Bitcoin and crypto, just 
can you give us some color on the marketplace as far as where you're seeing flows, new products that are coming out in the ETF marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, this year has been a phenomenal run in um, market performance given uh, regulatory change and administration change in Washington. And um, this year has been all about large-cap equity. Um, and then a lot of flows have gone into cheaper products. So you're seeing a lot of migration from uh, mutual funds and ETFs and then lower-cost ETFs uh, where the flows are going. But largely, I think the themes of as of late – large-cap equity overweight. Uh, we're seeing a rotation out of uh, high-yield corporate bonds, most likely out of fears of rising rates and maybe a little inflation. And then I feel as though my clients are, are going into and, and, and uh, getting uh, exposure into emerging markets. Now, this is not my views. I'm just categorizing what I'm seeing from a macro pers- uh, perspective from my clients and not my opinion. Sure. And then, Reg, what about on factor side? Like, I know uh, on Twitter today there was a big tweet about, I think it was almost $500 billion has flown into value-labeled funds. Are you seeing anything there with momentum, value, quality? Well, what's the factor landscape looking like? You know, uh, Dr. Gray, I applaud your use on the word factor base. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ETF manufacturers like to call it smart beta, uh, which I disagree with. So I think from a factor perspective, we are definitely seeing – uh, uh, flow going quality. Uh, definitely seeing uh, flow going into um, uh, low vol or you know dividend weighted um, you know, strategies, and it's just a reflection of investor sentiment and views about you know how best to influence areas that are there's still growth to be had, and so um, value definitely um, you know we're seeing a mixed reaction around value. And I think that the overabundance or, or the net net flow into value um, uh, weighted strategies uh, is positive. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, one, one thing I know we were talking about at lunch, uh, which I think is interesting, is it seems like everything's going in ETFs, but pretty much all that money's going into Vanguard, iShares, the big you know monsters out there. Ryan, maybe you can speak to. Do you have a sense of where this industry's going? Like how it can will consolidate? Will it branch out? What do you think? Yeah, well, what, what's really interesting, based off of like what Reggie just said, was he's seeing the flows go into the uh, domestic equity products, right? That's where the largest, and, and he's right. The largest amount of flows right now are going into S&P 500 uh, market cap equity. So then, but, but how it breaks down is where it gets really interesting. So the, the top fun, uh, fund flow for the year is into IVV, which is the iShares S&P 500 market cap weighted. It's four basis points. Uh, the last I checked, the fifth highest is Vanguard's S&P 500 market cap weighted product, uh, VOO, which is four basis points expense ratio. Now, the number one fund in outflows, and this was about a week ago when I last checked, so this could have changed, but the, the number one fund in outflows was SPY, the S&P 500 fund from uh, uh, State Street. Now, what's the difference between... SPY and IVV and VOO, well, from a basket construction, very, very minimal. But but the SPY charges nine basis points. IVV and VOO, iShares and Vanguard's products, charge four basis points. So they're the cheapest uh, S&P 500 market cap weighted ETFs. So what's interesting is if you have a commoditized product, right, where it's going to be the same index and other ETF issuers have the same product, it's it's really it's the low-cost product is going to win. Uh, uh, and that's what we're seeing across the industry right now. Yeah, it makes sense. Reggie, I know uh, you've been in this industry so long, you know, probably you have more experience in your thumbnail than, than I have in my whole head, probably. Um, can you just throw out some predictions that maybe would be counterintuitive to a lot of folks out there that maybe a lot of people aren't thinking about that, that you are seeing? Sure. I'd like just to respond to Ryan a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the tailwinds for 2017 for the ETF industry has been regulatory change around investor behavior. So around Department of Labor fiduciary role, um, advisors switched uh, client assets from higher fee vehicles to lower fee ETFs. So this is why you're seeing monster flows going to ETFs um, this year and then scaling down into the cheaper products. And so it feels as though that the industry, if it continues on this path, um, will challenge conventional uh, investment vehicles, particularly mutual funds. So one of the areas that um, 
know, I have a seat at this. I think that the mutual fund industry is going to convert half their business into ETF vehicles, you know, within 20 years. So you're going to see some radical changes around investment delivery and uh, and the delivery of intelligence from advisors to the community over cost and best vehicles to do that. And, you know, looking at this industry, um, again, with regulatory change in Europe, for example, you have something called MIFID II and just uh, the way of the behavior around paying for research and best price and best transparency. So transparency around the world has been a mandate over the last five years. Happened in Canada, happened in the United States, happened in Europe and Australia. It's going to be the transparency of best price to lowest cost vehicles for retail investors. The ETFs are going to be the main driver of that. So you're going to see a lot of conversion. And then if you look at fixed income markets, for example, because of ETFs, how corporate bonds are traded um, around the world is going to radically change because you can get uh, trice tr- uh, uh, transparency in ETFs, where in corporate bond, you're operating in a uh, in a marketplace that has a lot of opaqueness. So uh, it can be transformative, in my opinion. You know, there's a lot of folks who have concerns around uh, spreads around ETFs, and and they're thinking they're paying too much. But uh, in reality, the spread of an ETF is reflective of underlying assets, and the the width of the basket, and also the the depth of the basket. So ETFs offer a transparent view. That, that sounds. Let me just uh, break in for a quick second, reintroduce all of our, our guests. My name is Chris Gennady of uh, Wisdom Tree. We're speaking today with uh, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, uh, Reggie uh, Brown, uh, Senior Managing Director of the ETF Group at Kenner Fitzgerald, uh, Ryan Curlin, Head of Capital Markets at Alpha Architect, uh, and we've we've covered a lot thus far. And, and Wes, please. Uh, Let's let's continue. We have another sure. Yeah. Minutes. So I actually went to Twitter, and our good friend Jeremy Schwartz, who's <laughs> usually here, actually was the first one to respond with questions for Reggie. And it's kind of related to the the high yield market here, or just bonds in general. Excuse me. Uh, but he asked, "How big a risk are high yield ETFs to the marketplace?" There's tons of myths and you know freakouts out there. What what is your opinion, uh, being a professional that's actually in these markets making them? Well, to my colleague at Wisdom Tree, I will respond by saying that the corporate bond market, both investment grade and high yield, is $8 trillion. And the ETF industry has 4% of that indexed into ETFs. And so everyone looks at ETFs as being some sort of catalyst. When rates rise, everyone's going to run out to the door. But in reality, you're going to have multiple vehicles that folks have exposure in that are looking to reset and adjust. So ETFs don't protect from principal uh, gains or losses, but they just help help you transact in the marketplace as efficient. So um, in in uh, in a situation where there's more outflows and inflows into the corporate bond market, you'll just have price resets and equilibrium of prices, and ETFs will help you find the transparent view quickly. So if an ETF is trading 1% discount to its posted NAV, now most investors don't understand how NAV is constructed in the first place. But if it's trading 1% um, uh, discount to its NAV, that just means the bond market has moved 1% lower and is giving you a real-time, accurate view about where things are being priced. So the journalists out there like to fan the flames and throw a little salt on some open wounds. And my response to them is that spend some time, uh, put some academics to it, and then really understand uh, how ETFs are constructed in order to accurately educate those who you are reaching. Yeah, and if I could add to that, I mean, because Reggie and I had talked about this before, and and to uh, emphasize what Reggie's saying here, so the the benefit of the ETF, one of the things that people thought was a, originally people uh, took as a uh, uh, error of ETFs, is that it gives you a secondary source of liquidity. So uh, in an example, there was a time when the Egyptian stock market had uh, closed down due to a crisis there. And there were Egyptian ETFs and and, uh, ETFs that owned Egyptian stocks. Well, those People looked at it as a bad thing. Well, wow, the underlying stocks in Egypt are closed down, and and this ETF in the U.S. is still open and trading. How can that happen? That's bad, right? But then we realized, wait a second, 
if you own the underlying Egyptian stocks, you wouldn't even be able to sell or buy or hedge your position in any way. But the ETF gave you a secondary source of liquidity. So even though the underlying stocks weren't trading, you were still able to trade the ETF. And the, so the ETF was a price discovery vehicle at that time for what the Egyptian stock market was trading at. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to just to uh, uh, knock the ball out of the ballpark, Ryan, uh, at the marketplace, uh, net sells a billion dollars worth of Japanese equity exposure at 2 p.m. New York time. Arbitragers and market makers like myself are going to be net short, and we're going to go into the Japanese marketplace overnight and hedge our risk up to the period where uh, risk traded in the United States. So ETFs are forecast tools. So if you see right. international ETF up 1%, then you can probably have good confidence or a high degree of confidence that that local market will behave up 1% overnight because that flow is going to go into the marketplace overnight. Yeah, it makes sense. Here's another question from Twitter. This is something that we always get asked as well. August 24th, everyone's trashing on ETFs. Do you have any inside baseball on uh, explaining that? Or first tell us what happened that day and what your thoughts are on it and if you know the naysayers are correct or wrong. Well, um, you know, I sit on a couple of industry um, uh, committees that reviewed August 24th of 2015 and that was a worldwide market event where the markets uh, reacted in a negative fashion, starting in Asia, spilled over in uh, Europe, and closed up the United States. And we had some um, some ancient rules on a couple exchanges how equities were uh, to be open for trading uh, that day. And because uh, the U.S. markets, the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, BATS, um, it had some rules on the books, particularly the New York Stock Exchange, that did not uh, provide transparency of where equities were opening up, but the ETFs had started trading. Uh, there was a lot of confusion in the marketplace how to price equity-based ETFs. Fixed income was no problem, commodities no problem, futures no problem. It was all about equities. And so that lends to um, another thumb rule. The marketplace is only as liquid as its underlying uh, uh, asset class. So if the market is not open, you can't freely trade it, you can probably guess the ETF will have similar characteristics and behave the same way. So August 24, 2015, was a result of the inability to arbitrage real-time U.S.-based equity ETFs based on rules at stock exchanges. And a lot of retail um, uh, investors got hurt because of uh, order types, namely stop losses on the books, and they were transacted at uh, at artificially uh, inaccurate prices uh, based on fair value. That's great explanation, Reg. Appreciate that. And just just kind of spinning off that, uh, when we talk about the retail investors, you, you've been in this business for so long. Do you have any kind of general rules of thumbs for people that are going to the ETF marketplace to make purchases and trying to do this in a smart, diligent way? Well, you know, I, I think the first thing is understanding that ETFs are mutual funds that trades on, on exchanges. And what's inside of an ETF, you have to do your own diligence to understand what you're investing in. So reliance on the 125 ETF issuers here in the United States is pretty important. And so uh, doing your own diligence, having education on how ETFs uh, uh, based on S-Class operates is pretty important, and having an expectation around performance is key. And so um, the first thumb rule is uh, understand what you're investing in. Second is how does the characteristic operate, the underlying asset class operate? And third, uh, always use a limit order entering into the marketplace. You'll be surprised, listeners, that uh, a number of investment advisors at some wirehouses don't have the ability to put a, a, a limit order into the marketplace they are unable to control the direction of their order. And that actually results into uh, an outcome for individual investors that uh, may not be predictable. So having a conversation with your investment advisor, how they place trades on your behalf, is prudent, in my opinion. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think it brings up a good point, because I, I just would assume that if you're going to hire an advisor or fiduciary, they would, in theory, have the, the knowledge to protect you from making bad decisions. But 
sounds like some places it's built in the cake that you might not get good ETF execution possibly. Or equity execution. So ETFs are a part of the equity world. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to have that final conversation once you agree over uh, investment strategy, uh, the cost you're going to pay is how best will that strategy be implemented in the marketplace and that how best you you can be protected from wild swings in the market. And so if you look at um, this current marketplace now, it's electronic. Uh, you used to see funny guys wearing jackets on various stock exchanges. They're all gone. It's now computerized, and um, and you know I can, from my perch, you know, uh, retail investors have gotten the best benefit of cheap executions at reasonable prices in this marketplace, and that is academic evidence uh, based on the last thirty years. So you've gotten the best benefit of it. You got to do one last tale ask a few more questions to make sure that uh, in times of stress that you're not trading in those times. Got it. Makes sense. Here, here's another question from Twitter that's, that's somewhat related. Uh, the question is really about bid-ask spreads, sure. where there's that trade-off where a mutual fund, at least you get NAV. In ETF, you you might get NAV with the with the haircut. Do you see the, those spreads, are they kind of are they at that where they're going to be? You think they're going to get lower over time? What is your opinion on where spreads go in ETFs? Well, I think the first thing I would ask the question uh, about the mutual fund is, what's NAV in a mutual fund? Uh, you know, you get last sale of the mutual fund, but how's that derived? How do you know you got you know the, the best deal possible? Uh, mutual fund assets are mutualized, and uh, the net effect buys and sells are um, are uh, invented into the marketplace. With an ETF, you can control the price you pay, and you get transparency immediately. So with a wide bid-ask spread, it's just telling you the basket price or the online basket is wide, and the secondary market of that um, is still maturing and that you can still get efficient um, execution by just knowing what fair value could be. You can get that on public uh, websites. Yeah, it makes sense. Chris, did you have a question for Reggie? Uh, absolutely. I know we've, uh, we've definitely touched on fixed income. We've touched on equity. Uh, the alternatives world is a world where there's a lot of interest in more transparent, more liquid, maybe some lower costs uh, involved. Mm-hmm. But it's probably also true that not every alternative is suitable uh, for the ETF structure. So I would, I would just be curious on your take on some different alternative strategies that you might think fit well in the ETF as well as some that probably don't fit at all. Well, Ryan talked about diamonds earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of dubious, I think, you're <laughs> talking about diamonds. Um, so I, I think Wall Street is great with Wall Street cooking and uh, really innovative ideas into different wrappers. Um, I would urge that a careful layer of diligence is placed on new ideas to make sure they're accurate. So right now, we're, we just talk about Bitcoin quite a bit. Everyone's focused on um, on putting Bitcoin in, but I think we have to define what Bitcoin really is and why we're all talking about it. Uh, there's a lot of speculation around that. So caution, in my opinion. Uh, but alternatives. Um, what's happening now is that I talked about earlier, the long-only mutual fund providers are dying to put their business inside of an ETF wrapper and do it in a non-transparent way. So I think the next stop for regulatory bodies is to continue their review is non-transparent ETFs. And uh, the end result, I believe, that they will be approved. Uh, Eaton Vance has one concept in the marketplace um, that's slowly gaining speed. And there's others out there with different uh, uh, vehicle types. Uh, But it's going to come down to how much can the marketplace know and then uh, what happens during stress markets. And so you start putting alternative things inside of an ETF wrapper. This is where my opinions start diverging a little bit. Don't call an ETF. And then have a lot of education on what that strategy could be. So if you start putting in cows, corns, pigs, and other things. Now, they exist already. But if you start putting in um, you know, alternatives in, uh, weather futures, I've heard that idea before. I've heard ideas around different types of commodities. I've heard real estate, uh, actual real estate, actually. Um, It gets problematic. And I think that the industry needs to have a higher layer of governance around 
those ideas and say, maybe it's not time to do that. Let's halt. Because the cost of entry is low and the even the cost for failure is even lower. So we should have a higher cost for failure, in my opinion, um, you know, in the investment world. So I want to thank both Ryan and Reggie uh, for being on the show today. I think we've really covered a lot, uh, both things that are in the news and people who trade ETF, things that are on their minds. Uh, my name is Chris Gennady. Uh, I'm co-hosting today with Wesley Gray of Alpha Architect, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. My name is Christopher Gennady, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, hosting this segment with Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, in place of our usual host, Jeremy Schwartz. Now, I'd like to welcome Deanne Steele, our second guest to the program. She is head of national portfolio management and consultancy practice with U.S. Trust. She leads a team of investment and wealth strategy professionals within U.S. Trust, and as well as uh, participates in the fiduciary uh, investment committee and on the U.S. Trust Investment Strategy Forum. I should disclose that U.S. Trust portfolio managers can and do utilize Wisdom Tree investment strategies. Deanne? Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be on the program. So I would love to have you start by introducing yourself a bit to the audience, speak a bit about your background, just so we can get to know what your experience has been like within uh, financial services getting to the point where we are today. Sure. Well, I've been in the business about 25 years, um, starting at the very bottom of a, of a investment management and fiduciary organization as a file clerk. Um, eventually got my MBA and my chartered financial analyst and CAIA designations. Um, made my way eventually to New York to co-manage a mutual fund. Um, all the while working with high net worth individuals and foundations to really help them achieve their, their long-term goals. And so my, my passion is always that, helping people understand the complexities of the world economy and how to execute upon the views that we have of that economy um, and really understanding the changing dynamics within our business. And it was, it was interesting because as we were preparing for the show, I know – uh, one of the big themes, um, because it's almost uh, we we talked about the economy there, and what people are starting to do is they're starting to think of ways to use their investments to influence the economy, to influence how companies behave and act, uh, to try to really, uh, in short, change the world with their investment strategies, as opposed to again just investing, thinking of a return, thinking of a risk, and moving. On and of course the, the the topic the name of the topic is impact investing and I I know it's a big focus for you I'd love to get your perspective on kind of your experience through the years how impact investing may have evolved and what it really means today when people use that term. Sure. So the way I look at it is we try with through impact investing what we're trying to do is do well by doing good. And so do well, meaning achieving your return objectives and your long-term, being able to achieve your long-term goals, whether that's for your family or for the foundation you're, you're running or on the board of, um, by doing good, which is rewarding companies that have some type of positive social or environmental impact um, within the global, uh, global environment. And impact investing has really changed. It, it used to be... Um, called socially responsible investing. And back when it first started, it was more about uh, eliminating certain companies. And so you could eliminate, say, tobacco companies or firearm companies or alcohol um, or oil production companies, whatever you were um, wanting to just not have exposure to given your personal values. Um, that came usually with some type of performance sacrifice. What has happened with as impact investing has evolved, and um, another term for impact investing is ESG, environmental, social, and governance, is it has transitioned into something that's more less about excluding, although that certainly can still be a part of it, but more about rewarding companies that have the right, uh, the right structures, the right governance structure, the right focus on 
saving energy. You know, an example would be a company that has uh, put solar panels in place or is very focused on their waste um, or having some type of social impact. So an example would be having the, the right level of diversity within their board or their management structure, uh, having very strong um, parental leave, which would include maternity leave and as well as, well as paternity leave, um, which I'm a big proponent of as well. And so these companies, uh, by rewarding these companies, we can reward them with our investment dollars the same way we reward them as consumers. And so what's very exciting about the current environment is with, with social media, we're seeing the power that we have as consumers to really affect how companies' products are are made, are, are purchased, what movies we go to, um, the makeup of companies. And so the same way we can reward them or punish them through our dollars as consumers, we can do the same through um, our investing dollars. And there's lots of reasons why this makes sense beyond just wanting to um, use your dollars for your own personal values that I'm, I'm happy to get into through this discussion. Hey, Dan, this is uh, Wes. Um, I recently uh, sat down actually with a few friends, uh, Lori Chori at, at uh, Veris Investment and Linda Chang at Purview, and they mentioned this term investing via gender lens. Do you mind just describing what that is and, and what that means and, and you know, to tell the audience a little bit more about the concept? Sure. So gender lens is one aspect of ESG or impact investing, and that's specifically just looking at gender. So what percentage of a board is male or female? What percentage of a company overall is male or female? And what's interesting about this, and this gets into some of the just the, the fundamental reasons to have this type of lens and to have this focus within portfolios and the reasons why virtually every stock analyst and bond analyst in the street is now incorporating these factors in their t analysis is, is what has been proven is that uh, there was a study done back looking at 2011 to 2016. Companies with at least three women on the board had 10% higher return on equity and 37% higher EPS. And three is the tipping point. Having three on a board is the tipping point. It's enough to actually change the environment of a board in that diverse thought and diverse opinion and background is more welcomed and more explored. And this is, this is the fundamental reason why I believe that it's leading to these higher, the higher RO, ROE and EPS, is that when you have diverse opinion and diverse thought, you better explore both growth, growth opportunities as well as risks that might affect your growth opportunities. And it's the reason why these, this factor along with with other ESG factors, are one of the best indicators of stock volatility um, and and large drawdowns. Because if you're doing those things wrong, you can have you know very poor volatility. So the gender lens is just looking at it simply from from gender, but it it flows into lots of other factors within a company's decision making process, and it is an indicator of the acceptance of diverse thought within a company. It's it's interesting that you frame it like that because one of the things that's gotten a lot of publicity lately, Ray Dalio published his book, uh, Principles, and within it, uh, he talked about the idea of an idea meritocracy where uh, even though as human beings we get influenced and besieged with all sorts of things, whether it's on social media, TV, the news, what have you, at the end of the day, we have to, in our best versions of ourselves, put emotion aside and think, how do we get to the best idea? How do we get to the best solution to this, pro this, this problem that might be facing our firm? And I, I think you're exactly right in the sense that the more sources and perspectives and viewpoints that you have, 
essentially the better you're the better you're going to be and it was interesting to read about say his approach at Bridgewater to transparency and uh, thought processes and thinking about how uh, you can encourage different groups of people to speak up or different people to speak up and feel comfortable doing so which it's it's not always easy and I'd be curious you know throughout your career uh, in your experience uh, you know the financial services industry is not always known for its uh, diversity um, do, do you have any sort of times where it was maybe harder to speak up or, or times where you, you really felt like you got a, a very solid idea across uh, throughout your career? Well, I've, I've, I've had good and bad experiences over my career, definitely. And some, I'll say, were my own doing of just my perceptions of what was okay and not okay to do. And um, I've really spent a lot of time the last couple of years in particular really exploring it. And I'm fortunate enough to be at a firm that, that truly embraces diversity. Um, half of our employee base are women, 40% of managers, and 30% of our board. So I'm in a very safe environment to really explore these issues. And so you know, what, I, what I always try to do is just create a, an environment where everybody feels safe to have these discussions, to have, to be able to think out loud. And this is really an environment that millennials especially have really been brought up in. I see this with my own son who's in middle school. They, from as early as kindergarten, are allowed to express their thoughts so freely. Um, and this is where I think as a, as a financial services in industry overall, we really need to really think about if we're creating a safe environment where people can have diverse thought and express it um, because that will lead us to have a better a better environment and I think that will also lead us to to be able to retain Millennials more retain diverse diverse um, employees more because in the end everybody whether you're um, whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're white or you're black, you want to be included in the conversation, you want to have an impact, and you want to help make your company better. So I just want to take a pause, reintroduce our guests here today. I'm Chris Gennady. You're listening to Behind the Markets, Mar- Markets on Sirius XM uh, Business Radio 111. I'm here in the studio with Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, and we're taking this half hour with Deanne Steele, who is head of national portfolio management and consultancy practice for U.S. Trust uh, at Bank of America Wealth Management. So, Deanne, I'd, I'd be curious to explore a bit in terms of the typical scenario that you face at U.S. Trust where a client comes in and maybe they have an inkling that they are thinking they might like to engage in something that looks like philanthropy or impact investing, and how might that conversation go, just just to give our, our listeners perspective in terms of, you know, they may not come to the table with the exact ideas or even know what the capabilities could be, but they just might have the thought they want to help and they want to make the world a better place. How, how might a conversation evolve naturally in that setting? Well, we spend a lot of time before we get to any type of discussion about what types of investing we're going to do and really getting to know our clients and getting to know what they're trying to accomplish, um, forming their legacy within their community, what they'd like to do with their families. So I feel like by the time we get to the discussion about how we build out their portfolio, we have an idea of if this is something they'd be interested in or not. But I do think that, that we within the industry need to have this discussion earlier. And it's as simple as saying, would you like, would you be interested in hearing about how we can align your investment process or the products within your portfolio in a way that matches your values? And if they say yes, and what we found in our surveys is that about 60% of high net worth individuals, 73% of women, and 85% of millennials will answer yes to that question then we can explore what that might mean to them. And there's a whole continuum of um, different ways that, that our clients might want to have exposure to this. This could be just having partial exposure. It's a great way to engage the second generation within a conversation, which ha- happens to be more involved, um, more 
have more of an emphasis on this. So if they're looking to educate their kids about wealth, it's a great way to start that. Um, so you can have part of it. You could have all of it. You could be focused on what we call impact first, which would be um, less focused on performance and more just on impact. An example of that would be some type of um, bond or investment that's really meant to just align with like building schools somewhere or giving a, a village in Africa access to water. There's a whole spectrum. Um, what's What's great is, as I mentioned earlier, more and more analysts are building this this within their portfolios and their analysis. And so I, what I'm hopeful uh, for is that this will just be a part of virtually every active style of management. And then it's really a question of what to what level do you want to, to have access to it. And there are so many products being formed. There's a huge amount of money flowing into this. And in 2014, about $100 million in the industry was being invested in ESG strategies with a, a gender-specific lens. And that we expect to be up by about 500% um, by the end of this year to over $600 million. So there's lots of money flowing into this because of the access to products and the shift in how we invest. Hey, Dan, this is uh, Wes again. Uh, just a quick follow-up on that. Um, I want to drill down here a little bit. But specific to uh, investing with a gender lens, we'll, we'll speak to, uh, I guess one of the trade-offs there is if you get really hardcore about it, your portfolios are naturally going to be you know, heavily loaded in particular industries or sectors, um, which is going to give you that purity of you know focusing on firms that are led by women and, and owned and managed by women. But then you have the tracking error problem, the portfolio risk slippage issues like how do you guys think about that and is this something that's just has to be customized for every client or do you think there can be a product that is a one-size-fit-all situation i think in this space more than any other space there is not a one-size-fit-all answer and it's because of that continuum of to what extent do you want to have your values reflected into your in your portfolio and to what extent is it important for you to be tracking an index, let's say the S&P 500, for example? So to your point, if you have a very strong gender lens focus, you might not have exposure to certain industries that perhaps, say you say you only want to invest in companies that have a female CEO. Well, we know that that's a very small handful of the S&P 500 at this point. But if you say instead, I would like to have exposure to companies that have more than three women on the board because we know that that's the tipping point and where you get this true benefit of diversity throughout the organization, better policies, better retention of employees, well, that changes the, the opportunity set. And because you have so much focus on this now and you have um, many large asset managers out there voting their proxies for or against companies based on their gender diversity on their board, um, you have a much larger opportunity set there. Um, and the other way you can also do it, too, is think about, it, I want to have exposure within each industry, and I want to, to invest in companies that have the best gender lens or gender diversity um, within that industry, and that still gives you exposure. So it is a continuum um, that that I think is going to shrink over time as we improve the the exposure that women have within our industry and within executive boards at various companies, public companies. Yeah, that, that's actually super interesting because uh, I was in, in a conversation the other day where we're actually talking about the growth of these sort of products and ETFs and mutual funds. But from listening to you here, it sounds like impact investing it in some sense is a very personal thing. So w would you say that the, because it needs to be so customized that maybe people might be overestimating the potential growth of these products in the more standardized format? I don't think, I don't think we're overestimating the growth. Uh, I think that because we, we just see so much demand for these screens, I think the the challenge will be the more focused that you are within a certain area of ESG, um, the less opportunity set you might have. But I think that there's just so much demand 
um, for it. And you're seeing flows go into it, which is also kind of self-reinforcing because in the end, buying stocks and bonds too is about, or stocks is about um, supply and demand. And if other companies see that there is more demand for their competitor because they have three women on the board and they don't, the idea behind this, behind impact investing, is that we hope to change that company to then have three women on the board. So I, I think the more that you see money flow into these companies, the more you will see demand for it. In the end, it's uh, it's interesting to think of it that way because ultimately there is this element of the bigger and the more growth that you see, the more influence that the concepts can ultimately have. And I know you've done a lot of thinking about the financial services industry and maybe some of the challenges that might face senior women and, and reasons behind the fact that you may not see as many female CEOs within uh, most firms. So ultimately, I'd be curious to hear your outlook uh, as well as some things that you might be influencing or doing uh, within your firm uh, to try to you know continue us along the spectrum of improvement. Certainly. Well, as you know, I'm I'm very focused on getting more women into the investment management industry in particular. In fact, I was at a CFA Institute meeting on Monday in San Francisco discussing this very issue. Of of all the CFAs in the world, they're only 18% are women. And you think about the fact that half of our world are, are women. Um, There's some interesting statistics. 39% of managers in the United States are women, 38% of physicians are women, 34% of attorneys, 38% of our businesses are women-owned businesses. So those percentages are not matching up. So what that means is, is that our industry overall is not reflective of who we seek to serve, the, the women who are out there making money, because we have for years, dating back to the 1980s, been outnumbering men in colleges. And so we need to more accurately reflect our client base as an industry um, just to serve them. And that's not to say that every woman wants to work with a female financial advisor, but I would think that, that we need to more just accurately reflect our client base. And so this is where it's just so important to, for everyone, men and women, to create a really safe environment to, um, to explore diverse thought and diverse ideas to make everybody, quiet people, loud people, white people, black people, every, every ethnicity feel like their, part, their voice can be heard um, because that's going to bring more people into our industry. It's going to retain more people into our industry. Um, it will lead to better ideas. It will lead to better risk assessment um, and identification um, and just overall be better for, for our whole financial services industry. I think we have a lot of work to do of, of talking about what we do and how we help clients and how we guide clients towards meeting their goals and solving their issues around taking care of their kids, taking care of their parents, um, that it's it's more than just about what product we're putting into a client or beating an index. It really is about solving complex issues for for clients who have assets and who have goals. Um, and women are so well suited for so it. So we Deanne, have a lot of work to improve that. Deanne, I, I think that was a wonderful way to wrap up uh, our show. And I want to thank you for being a guest on the program. Thank you also to Wes Gray, Reggie Brown, and Ryan Kierlin. And thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. We'll be